This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jan Hetner, who's the first author of the paper, A Randomized Controlled Trial Exploring Safety and Tolerability of Sulthion in Sleep Apnea, uh, which was recently published in the Blue Journal. Also joined by Christopher Smickle, who co-wrote the associated editorial. Dr. Hedner is Professor of Respiratory Medicine at the Solgrenska University Hospital in uh, Gothenburg, Sweden. And Dr. Smickle is the Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. So Christopher, before we discuss the paper, uh, can I start with just a, a few general questions about obstructive sleep apnea? What is our current understanding of the pathogenesis of obstructive sleep apnea, and specifically the importance of non-anatomical factors? Hi, John and Jan. Um, nice to meet you both, and thanks so much for having me on this podcast today. Maybe let me first briefly explain what obstructive sleep apnea actually is. Obstructive sleep apnea affects up to a billion people worldwide and is defined by repetitive collapse of the upper airway during sleep, causing arousals and intermittent hypoxemia. As a result, sleep apnea has been associated with serious neurocognitive and cardiovascular problems. So what causes obstructive sleep apnea? We know now that obstructive sleep apnea is a very heterogeneous disease, meaning that different patients develop sleep apnea for different reasons. One necessary component is a collapsible upper airway anatomy, for example, due to obesity. But for most patients with sleep apnea, this anatomical predisposition alone is not sufficient. And other non-anatomical factors, for example, like a low arousal threshold, are necessary in order for them to develop sleep apnea. To illustrate this point, maybe think of a typical sleep apnea patient. They don't have any trouble breathing while they are awake, but as they are falling asleep, the muscles in the body, including the upper airway dilator muscles, relax causing the upper airway to close. As a result, then ventilation drops, the drive to breathe goes up, which leads to an activation of the upper airway dilator muscles. If these muscles are able to quickly restore airway patency, the normal sleep is maintained. But if that um, person has a low arousal threshold and wakes up before the dilator muscles could fully activate and reopen the airway, then the person experiences a sleep apnea event. The same is true if the arousal threshold is actually normal, but the dilator muscles activate too slowly. What's interesting to me about this is that such non-anatomical factors can then be targeted pharmacologically, providing a potential avenue to develop drug therapy for sleep apnea, as demonstrated by Jan's work. Can you explain high loop gain and how it may contribute to the development of obstructive sleep apnea? Sure. First, loop gain is an engineering term that describes the stability of a negative feedback control system. A system of high loop gain is unstable whereas the system of low loop gain is intrinsically stable. Control of breathing is such a negative feedback loop in which two major components, chemoreceptors in the carotid body and lung, try to maintain an arterial carbon dioxide level of roughly 40 millimeters of mercury. So, for example, if ventilation drops due to upper airway narrowing during sleep onset, then the chemoreceptors will respond to that increase in arterial carbon dioxide, which leads to an increase in respiratory drive. As a result, Ventilation and thus carbon dioxide elimination will increase until the goal CO2 is reached and the chemoreceptors quiet down again. However, the system can become unstable. If, for example, the chemoreceptors are overly sensitive, 
and any minor increase in carbon dioxide leads to a large increase in ventilation, which can then lead to oscillatory breathing, like an overshoot and undershoot, basically. So this high Lupkin situation is the main reason for chain Stokes breathing in patients with heart failure. But we know, now know that it also contributes to obstructive sleep apnea in about one third of patients. Because during the nadir of the respiratory drive fluctuations, the activation to the upper airway dilator muscles actually goes down, which can then lead to the upper airway um, to collapse. Importantly, loop gain can be lowered through carbonic anhydrase inhibitors such as sulfium, and thereby improve obstructive sleep apnea as shown in Jan's paper. So, so finally, just in these questions, what is carbonic anhydrase and how does it influence respiratory drive and sleep apnea pathogenesis? Good, good question. So carbonic anhydrase is that enzyme that catalyzes that interconversion between carbon dioxide and water on one side and bicarbonate and hydrogen ions on the other hand. There are 15 different isoforms that are ubiquitous in human tissues, including kidneys, red blood cells, and chemoreceptors. And as such, carbonic anhydrase plays a critical role for the body's ability to control acid-base status and ventilation. So what role does carbonic anhydrase play for sleep apnea? There are some interesting data, actually from Jan's lab, suggesting that carbonic anhydrase activity may be increased in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. It's unclear to me if this increase in carbonic anhydrase contributes to sleep apnea pathogenesis or consequences of obstructive sleep apnea. But of course, we know that inhibition of the carbonic anhydrase in the kidney leads to a bicarbonate diuresis and thus a metabolic acidosis, which then leads to a compensatory increase in baseline ventilation. Importantly, when baseline ventilation is at a higher level, then a given change in ventilation will have relatively less effects on the arterial carbon dioxide levels. In other words, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors dampen fluctuations in carbon dioxide and respiratory drive, which lowers loop gain and thus can improve sleep apnea. But in addition, the overall increase in respiratory drive from carbonic anhydrase inhibitors may also counter the relative drop in respiratory drive seen during rapid eye movement or REM sleep which is thought to be the main culprit for respiratory events in REM sleep. This would explain why in Jan's study, sulfium led to similar improvements during REM as non-REM sleep, but I don't want to jump ahead. Thanks, a good segue into discussing the, the paper. Jan, what were the objectives of your study? Uh, well, um, this was a safety and tolerability study. And uh, as you just heard, we have been interested in the fact that the carbonic anhydrase activity appears to be elevated in the, in patients with sleep apnea, at least in some in the experimental studies we have seen so far. So we were interested in various carbonic anhydrase inhibitors we have been exploring, as well as solamide. So therefore, we opted to go for sultion, which you just heard about. So the first step was really to see whether that was well tolerated and if if it could be safely used in the populations. Uh, of patients with sleep apnea. So we had short-term studies over four weeks, and we have a dose-guiding element, which was quite an elaborate technique to study various dose levels. And then we had the secondary endpoints and tertiary endpoints, which are those of ventilation and respiration in sleep apnea. So what is the exact mechanism of sulfium? And how does it differ from other medications such as sulfamide that we're more familiar with? Yeah, that is a tricky one, and I'm not sure we quite know, but Christopher, I think, gave us a very nice explanation on the background of both the activity of the carbonic anhydrase and the sulfion. But, but uh, it's uh, truly a very complex enzyme, which is uh, 
represented throughout the body in various forms, as we just heard. You know, in reality, the binding characteristics of Sultion are quite similar to those of acetazolamide, uh, although that does not guarantee that the biological effects are identical in any way. They differ a little bit in half-life, uh, whereby Sultion has a bit longer half-life and maybe a bit more stable for that uh, uh, reason, possibly. And um, both drugs are expected to have a very similar effect, as we just heard on loop gain and also to stability of ventilation. But there may be uh, differences, although we don't have quite the head-to-head -head comparisons between the drugs uh, so far. There is also old experimental version, because the, uh, the idea to study Soltiav at the moment is a sort of a drug repurposing program. And there is old data from the 60s and 70s, really, suggesting that there may be additional stimulatory effects out of Sultion on top of those that we see in, in uh, after acetazolamide, although that is not all that strongly proven yet. Okay, so let's move on. So who was your study population and, and how were they selected? Well, the study population were people on the waiting list to the sleep lab or those that already had been through a cycle of uh, sleep studies and also therapy, because we opted to go for those that had been either refused or were non-tolerant to CPAP, uh, be well aware of that um, we could not sub-select the patients to any extent, and I'm not sure we really did, because uh, I think we have a reasonable case mix of these uh, patients. The quarter of the population was female. The BMI was a little bit thinner than, uh, were a bit lower than we usually used to see. There were about 29 patients were aged just about 60. The sleep apnea severity was quite uh, pronounced. They had an HI of 54 and an ESS of 11. So I think that gives the picture of a reasonably sick group of patients with sleep apnea. Okay, and your study design and methodology? Well, it was randomized, it was controlled uh, according to rules and techniques. We followed, as I said, these patients for four weeks. We uh, had really close adverse event scoring, as that was a, a, a major topic and target of the study. We did uh, stepwise dose cohorts, so we sort of block randomized patients uh, in blocks of 12 active for placebo for the reason that we, according to a predetermined dose incremental scheme, could actually run patients from 200 up to maximum 1,000 milligrams. As it now turned out, we never reached those levels, so patients received between two and 400 milligrams. And the guidance for this was provided by a data safety monitoring board, which um, continuously supervised the patients in relation to therapy. And then we followed them up, of course, with PSG. We had double PSG recordings at baseline and follow-up and focus on cardiovascular events uh, or cardiovascular effects and uh, also a quite extensive scheme for blood sampling and questionnaires. And what were your primary findings? Well, first of all, Soltion turned out to be well-tolerated and we had a dose-dependent appearance of side effects, I would say, because all patients terminating the study, six altogether, were found in the highest dose group. But uh, beside that, the AEs were non-serious, and the most prevalent 
side effect was really paresthesias, which is well known to occur after these types of drugs and was well tolerated. It was not the reason really for an exclusion of any more any patient in the study. And then we, with the secondary variables, we had an HI, which dropped by 41% uh, and the 32% at the two dose levels. We had about four out of 10 patients receiving uh, more than 50% reduction of sleep apnea intensity HI. Two out of 10 had more than 60% reduction. So we, just as Christopher alluded to earlier, uh, really saw some type of a dose-dependent effect and an effect that appeared in a subgroup of patients. We had uh, several markers of hypoxemia, which improved, improved oxygenation. We had a very strong effect on arousals, which were sharply reduced in the study. And then we have some interesting signals uh, on the metabolic side with the potential lipid-lowering effects, uh, and uh, which really needs to be followed up. Christopher, can I go back to you now? What are the major strengths and limitations of this trial? Well, I think methodologically this trial was done really well. And apart from the really uh, relative large sample size compared with prior studies, I think the major strength to point out is that that AHI, which describes the number of respiratory events per hour of sleep and measures OSA severity, that that was assessed from two sleep studies, thus reducing the noise from night to night variability. I think the major limitation in my view is probably the relative short study duration of four weeks, which may have limited the ability to detect some of the potential benefits in clinical outcomes like EPWES sleepiness score or FOSQ, which didn't really change in the study and precludes also like firm conclusions about long-term effects. But I believe this limitation is currently being addressed via a larger and longer-term study conducted by Jan. And how do these results compare to other studies of uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors and other drugs which have been shown to be effective in sleep apnea, such as the, the combination of uh, atomidexidine and oxybutrin? So if you look at Sulfam's safety profile, which was the primary focus of the study, then as Jan was saying, um, the results really are quite as expected based on studies of other carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, such as acetazolamide or sonizamide. For example, the side effects were more common with higher doses, were mostly mild and transient and included primarily paresthesia, GI upset, abnormal taste, which typically patients feel that when they drink like carbonated beverages. With regards to Sulfiam's um, effect on the AHI, I think two things were notable. First, Sulfiam lowered the AHI by about 30 to 40%, um, as, as Jan was saying, which is similar to other carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, but somewhat less than the 60% reduction that was reported in 2019 with atom oxygen oxybutynin which is a combination drug that aims to improve muscle activity and has garnered a lot of attention in the last few years. However, when you look at the absolute reduction by about 20 events per hour seen with sulfiam, this was quite a bit bigger than the reduction of 10 to 15 events with these other drugs, including atomoxidin, oxybutynin. Second, and maybe most notable, is that sulfiam's effect was very consistent across individuals, meaning that almost all patients in Jan's study experienced a substantial improvement in the AHI which is very different than in other studies of other carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, in which there's usually a lot of variability in terms of individual responses. Personally, I see three potential explanations for this finding. First, maybe there is really something about sulfiam that leads to a more consistent effect than with other carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, like that increased respiratory stimulation that, that Jan was alluding to. But second, I think measuring the AHI from two study nights also um, contributed to seeing less variance there. And, Third, I think it is possible that Jan's study 
unintentionally ended up including large portion of patients with high loop gain who are expected to be more responsive to sultiam. So just to build on that point, Jen, uh, are there any patient characteristics which will indicate a high loop gain and a potential good response to carbonic anhydrase inhibitors? Yeah, that, that is really the million dollar question. It's, it's a very good question, uh, which alludes to the possibility that uh, maybe we can find target groups here and thereby increase efficacy in a more personalized therapy principle. Actually, I'm not aware of any such uh, signs, and uh, it's really hard to even speculate on what that would be. Interesting, however, is that there is there's a very strong development in this field really based on trying to endotype patients with sleep apnea at the, at the very early stage. And maybe we can build those types of analysis algorithms into regular sleep studies and thereby get the better characterization of the patients and perhaps in the extension also identify those particularly uh, well served by uh, drugs, for instance. There's also, of course, a potential for biochemical markers or bio biochemical biomarkers. For instance, carbonic anhydrase activity, as we heard on earlier, we have a number of studies ongoing in that field, but I don't have any conclusive data as of yet. And I think, it, just as Christopher suggested earlier, that uh, we obviously need uh, larger scale prospective studies in order to address these questions properly. So Christopher, sort of, we always thought the pathogenesis of sleep apnea was anatomical, but you've indicated that non-anatomical factors may be a factor in up to 70% of patients. How do we identify these patients uh, who may be potentially sort of benefit from pharmacotherapy? Well, as Jan kind of alluded to, there are several techniques that have been developed. The most promising of which is probably an algorithm developed by Dr. Scott Sands and others which tries to estimate these non-anatomical factors like the low arousal threshold or like loop gain from respiratory signals obtained during in-lab sleep studies. There's also some other efforts ongoing to predict these non-anatomical factors based on readily available information from sleep study reports. But the truth is that this is an active field of investigation and more validation of these approaches is necessary before we can really widely adopt them. So for now, maybe it's just best to focus on patients with, for example, a moderate BMI, maybe like less than 35. OSA in patients with more severe obesity is likely more driven by a collapsible upper airway anatomy. And from that end, less likely to respond to therapies targeting non-anatomical factors. Now, Jan, so just to finish off, I mean, uh, you're, you've been in this field for a long time. You're a specialist, not only in sleep medicine, but also in clinical pharmacology. Do you think pharmacotherapy will ever be the primary therapy for obstructive sleep apnea, or at least an, an adjunctive treatment in other therapies such as dental appliances? Yeah, yeah, well, that would be my very personal opinion, and I definitely believe so. Although, as we have heard today, we are not likely to find the, the magic silver bullet that will solve all problems in all patients with a single drug. I think we will find subgroups and endotypes that are specifically responsive to certain types of therapies and and also the the perspective of combining drug therapy with uh, mechanical therapies which really dominate this field of medicine i think could have a great potential as well many of these therapies are um, hampered by uh, limited uh, compliance so if for instance you are a four hour CPAP user in an eight-hour sleeper you only have a 50 percent effective compliance with the therapy because 
you leave a lot of time without protection from the CPAP. So in that perspective, you know, drugs may be put into another light, uh, and uh, that could uh, obviously improve the possibilities for us to find more specific drugs. Also, which I think is worth mentioning, is that sleep apnea, as we know, and also heard earlier, is associated with certain comorbidities, which could be quite severe, and there could be a winning end in some types of drugs where we actually have effects not only on ventilation and sleep apnea per se, but potentially also, let's say, blood pressure-lowering effect or lipid or glucose metabolic improvements after certain types of drugs, which would then add on to the effect. Okay, so this has been a great discussion. Are there any final comments that you'd like to make, starting with you, Christopher? Well, I agree. This has been a really great discussion. I want to thank you both again for having me on this podcast today. I think there are still many questions that need to be addressed. You mentioned, for example, also whether drugs like Sodium actually improve clinically important outcomes and not just the apnea hypopnea index, which is really just a surrogate outcome. But I think this, this trial is clearly a milestone in our journey towards a drug therapy for obstructive sleep apnea, which I also would agree might be available in the not-so-distant future. And I definitely look very forward to Jan's follow-up studies of Sodium. Any final comments? Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Christopher, for those nice words. And uh, you obviously have a lot of good stuff going on on your side as well. Well, I, I, I must underline this for saying I, I've been uh, amazed by the big interest we have met in, in the, the, on the Association of Sleep Apnea and Drug Development. And I think that reflects that the scientific community in this field is really you know, open to and awaiting novel forms of therapy, which I think would be very much improving the, the area. So in conclusion, I'd like to thank both uh, Dr. Hedner and Dr. Schmeichel for this very interesting podcast. Uh, to the listener, to read the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. Uh, to listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Um, you can also subscribe to, to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Uh, so thank you again for listening and um, thank you again to Drs. Hedner and Schmeichel.